Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot. No. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you what it's like to grow up in a family haunted by trauma. A book by a Polish-American writer. We were planning to introduce you to an American filmmaker, writer, talking about his book on how Poles founded Hollywood. Due to an unexpected situation, we will present a Canadian writer who authored two books about the role of Poles in the new world. Why the change will become clear later. Smachnego, we're here talking about our love for eating and drinking Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens. A nice red wine will always pair well with Polish food, but to change things up a bit, try a flavor-infused vodka. Vodka has the unique characteristic of taking on the flavors of anything that is added to it in just a few hours. Start with a decent Polish potato vodka. Luksusowa is a brand that we use because it's very smooth and relatively inexpensive. The really cheap brands will have a noticeable bite, and we never buy the expensive brands for infusing because we're changing the flavors. So why waste the money? Peter's dad loved to make lemon vodka for parties. He would slice up one or two lemons, put them in a mason jar filled with vodka, and put it aside for a couple of days, a week, or even a month. The longer he waited, the better it was. Cherry vodka is a favorite, and it's a great choice. Just place some pitted cherries and a half cup of sugar into a mason jar, fill it with vodka, and forget about it. I like to wait several weeks, but there's always a lot of tasting involved. And oh yeah, by then the cherries alone are also awesome, especially over ice cream. If you're feeling brave, try putting a couple of tablespoons of prepared horseradish into your vodka. Let it sit a while and strain before drinking. This will wake you up for sure. The big rule of all is to keep and serve your vodka ice cold, right out of the freezer. But the biggest rule of all is to always drink responsibly and don't let your friends drink and drive. Please check out our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Smachnego! Eddie Zawadzki, a proud Canadian and a proud Paul, a man with a big heart that had room for both these identities and for many, many people, had no idea, even a week ago, that it would be that very heart that would suddenly stop his successful life at the age of just 57. 
This is our way to say goodbye to the Toronto journalist, broadcaster, sports commentator, and author of two sports books, as well as two books on the role of polls in the new world. You know, I'm a journalist. I've written several books, uh, sports books, and non-sports also. Um, But I've been on TSN and ESPN, too, as a color commentator, doing color for kickboxing and uh, and a few other sports, and uh, and for boxing also. And uh, we're really working hard at trying to get boxing going again here in Toronto. Judy McLeod is a journalist with Canada Free Press. She and Eddie worked together for years and were close friends. We sort of inherited Eddie. We had at that time been running a a newspaper known as uh, Our Toronto. It was a journal that was a print journal. And at the time we had uh, a a sports section. And uh, George Chevallo, the boxer, was one of our writers. Don Cherry and Eddie Schack. But, but George Chevallo's wife, very tragically, very sadly, took her life. Uh, and uh, George, uh, who needed time for grieving, said to, said to me, well, um, I'm wondering if I could replace myself with a, a friend of mine called Eddie Zawatsky. And Eddie just jumped aboard just like that. And he, he was wonderful. He, when he came in, he, he decided he wanted to know everything about newspaper reporting, everything about writing, and Eddie threw himself zealously right into it. And also he was very interested in boxing, right? I mean, he was a commentator. He was constantly on uh, um, television, you know, as uh, the host, actually, of some uh, some very famous boxing matches. He was really, I, I think more than anything else, devoted to writing. You know, uh, he branched off from, from, from writing about boxing, writing a sports column, to investigative reporting, and then, of course, as you know, writing books. Eddie Zawatsky was incredibly close to his now 97-year-old mother, Wanda, traveled with her to endless book signings in Canada and the United States. My parents immigrated from Poland after World War II. My mom was in a concentration camp. My dad was a prisoner of war. They fell in love. They, my dad broke my mom out. They ran halfway across Europe for, to, to run back to England so my dad could re-enlist to fight. I get choked up when I think about it. They were beautiful parents, and they taught me to be the proudest Canadian. Canada is everything to me. But you can never take away the thousand years of history of your heritage. He is a proud, proud son of Poland. His knowledge of Polish history was so impressive. And any time that he any came to any social event that Canada, with which Canada Free Press was involved, he really impressed people by his, his innate knowledge of Polish history. My mom's knee. I learned all about the famous poles from, you know, John Sobieski, Madame Curie, Paderewski, uh, Marshall Pasutski, everybody, uh, the, the people that broke the Enigma codes. Um, Poland's got one of the richest histories of any country in the world. And my parents always made sure that we knew about it and that we appreciated it. And I loved it. And I loved the fact that I'm a Canadian, but I'm just as proud of the fact that I'm also Polish. In 2005, he made his first trip to Poland. It was a sentimental journey and a great gift for his mother, Wanda. We thought that we would find some distant relatives somewhere in Poland, and we put them together with my mom, and 
and but we found my aunt alive in uh, in Poland, and I flew my mom out there, and uh, they saw each other for the first time in 65 years, and it was just an incredible thrill, and it 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 made me appreciate Polish culture, and I met all my new relatives that I never knew existed, and my eyes opened up to a whole new level about Polish culture and history. And that's a big part of the reason why I did the book also. And Eddie Zawadzki wrote two books. In 2011, Poles in the New World, and in 2013, Poles in the New World, The New Generation. I wanted to get an eclectic mix of people in the book. I wanted a cross-section of society. I wanted to, you know, touch, of course, on sports and the military, and there's so many interesting people. I mean, there were certain people that I love to write about. The books were extremely popular, both in their English and in their Polish editions. This is what Eddie said before the beginning of his promotional campaign. Well, I'm going on tour. Actually, I'm leaving uh, for the States. I'll be in Michigan, Chicago, St. Louis, Washington. I'm going to be all over the United States. There's over 25 million people in Canada and the U.S. that have Polish blood going through their veins. And, uh, you know, we're getting out to meet them. Well, he won't go on meeting them anymore. But the fact is that he met hundreds upon hundreds of people, talked to them about Polish history and the role of Poles in many walks of life in Canada and the United States. All of them say goodbye to Eddie. We will remember him and his great work, but not only that. That, plus his, the love, he, the, the abiding love for his mother, Wanda, and of course, Eddie's sense of humor. He excelled. I, I, I think Eddie is one of those people who, who will be remembered long after death. Uh, people loved Eddie. He had that kind of a personality. Besides being colleagues, we were close friends. Uh, I will miss him very much. To see pictures, videos, and learn more about Eddie and his work, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Poland may have the greatest population of gnomes, these tiny dwarf creatures that we all know so well from Snow White. In Slavic countries, tiny, often invisible house spirits, krasnoludki, were in the past appeased with rituals and treats to protect the home. Interestingly, they don't feature just in Slavic legends and fairy tales. The Polish city of Wrocław, a gorgeous and entertaining city, the 2016 culture capital of Europe, is all about gnomes, with an entire culture developed around them. You can find them all over the city, on street corners, in doorways, in many unexpected places. According to the last March 2016 census, 
There are 386 of them. Wrocław's dwarves do not come from ancient legend, but are a product of some imaginative people's struggle against the oppressive communist state. Orange Alternative, in Polish, Pomarańczowa Alternatywa, a Polish anti-communist underground movement started in Wrocław, fought with the authoritarian regime by unconventional ways, through peaceful protests employing absurd and nonsensical elements. The police would cover anti-government slogans on city walls. Then, the Orange Alternative activists would paint innocent dwarves to cover them. It was a truly clever way. The police could not really arrest its members without becoming a laughingstock. How can you seriously arrest someone for painting gnomes? After the fall of communism, Wrocław artists commissioned by the local government created more gnomes and they became a hit with tourists and local businesses until gnomes filled every nook and cranny of the Wrocław's old town. Looking for them while in Wrocław is a fun alternative to traditional sightseeing, both for kids and adults alike. You can buy a special map marking the location of 30 most centrally located gnomes and learn about their history and other gnome trivia on a bilingual Polish-English website www.krasnale.pl Have fun gnome hunting in Wrocław. Donna Solecka Orbicus was born and grew up in Chicago, but her Polish-born mother and much older half-sister had endured the wartime trauma of Soviet gulag slave labor in Siberia. War and exile created a profound bond between mother and older daughter, inaccessible to Donna. She explores these painful family issues and her process of understanding and coming to terms with their complexity in her book My Sister's Mother, a memoir of war, exile, and Stalin Siberia, published by University of Wisconsin Press. We reach Donna in Chicago. There are many, many books about the Siberian experience, but the one that you wrote is quite unusual. It's, it's the story of your family, deeply divided and tragically broken by the, the, that wartime experience. Can you briefly tell us about your family? Well, my mother and sister were... Um, in eastern, what was then eastern Poland, near Grodno, and um, my mother was a landowner. She had uh, married the man who was my sister's father. Um, they didn't really get along, so she was on her own with this farm. It was a fruit farm. And when the war broke out, the Russians came, and um, she was in that first wave in February of 1940 of deportations, where they came in the middle of the night and, you know, at gunpoint told her to pack up and, and leave, and they and with my sister, she went to um, a labor camp in Siberia. They were there for a couple of years until Germany attacked Russia. Amnesty was declared, and my mother ended up escaping from the camp because, of course, the Soviets weren't going to allow these free 
slave laborers to leave. In the meantime, my father had been captured in Lithuania at the start of the war and had been sent to a prisoner of war camp uh, near the Kachin Forest in Kozhevsk, and he narrowly escaped being one of those 22,000 officers and other intellectuals who were murdered. Um, so when Russia had to now join the Allied forces against Germany, they were required by the Polish government in exile to allow the prisoners and the camps to leave. So my mother tried to find her way to the Polish army that was forming, and they, my parents met briefly in that turmoil. They met again um, later on in southern Soviet Union, and then finally at the end of the war, they each did not want to go back to communist Poland, so they ended up going to England, and they met again. And that's where I was born, and we came to America in 1952. So I was raised in the Polish-American community in Chicago, and my mother was one that uh, always talked about all those terrible things that happened to her um, throughout my whole childhood. At first, I was quite frightened by some of the things that she was saying. Later on, as a teenager, I was quite annoyed um, because it seemed like the war was always coming up no matter what or when. It was just uh, in my face all the time. Later on, when I was uh, an adult and finally when I became a mother, I had asked her to write these things down. It was the middle of the 1980s and Poland was under martial law and there was all this political strife going on, and I had been to Poland um, 10 years earlier, 1976, at the start of some of those food strikes. So I got a very good sense of what it was like to live under communism, and I felt that this was a story that was not really known, especially not in America. And so I finally convinced my mother to sit down and write things down logically. My father was... Um, instrumental in getting her to sit down and write these things down and then I had tape recorder for her for her to speak and I still have those recordings I proceeded to write um, finally um, I decided a few years ago that this needed to get um, out there somehow and I enrolled at the University of Chicago's writing program and they convinced me very quickly uh, I could not really be writing my mother's memoir I needed to write my own memoir by then, my mother had passed away and my father, and so I embarked on this uh, story that has now come out with uh, an alternating chapter way of incorporating things that affected me as a child and as a young adult uh, from some of the stories that she told while she was, you know, undergoing this horrible, horrible ex uh, experience. But but why did you write the book? Was it more to tell the story that is so unknown to the world or, you know, so unknown in the United States at least? Or was it more for, for those personal family reasons to, like, deal with your own family issues? Well, initially it was to be an educational thing to, because I felt that, you know, the Polish story was not known. I mean, in my own experience and going through American schools, I mean, this was not something that was taught. I only knew about it, you know, because my family went through it and I was going through Polish school and Polish Girl Scouts and so all my Polish friends, you know, had similar stories and, you know, experiences, and, and so we knew about it, and then I was discovering that most Americans didn't know about this, and, and there was quite 
uh, political upheaval going on in Poland. And so my initial uh, reason for writing it was to, you know, write this history in the context of my family's story. Later on, I found it very cathartic. I think my mother found it uh, at the catharsis, too, when we finished the, at least her part of the story. My experience is that a lot of survivors of, of the Soviet gulags never talk about the horrors they experienced. The, the next generation would say they never talked about it. Right. So your mother was the opposite. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, she, I think she found some mental relief in talking about it, but she never had, I think, closure with those things that happened. She would, she was extremely angry about both Germany and the Soviets. And, but she did say that, you know, in her trails, travels through, you know, the Soviet Union, um, that, the Russian people that she met were good to her. It was just the communists that, um, you know, were the problem. How was it for you, born and raised, you know, in a free country, to be facing these stories from the past, like on an ongoing basis? How did it affect you growing up? Um, as a young child, I, I was frightened because I'd find her talking to somebody in her past and, and looking at herself in the mirror and talking to somebody and saying some really scary kinds of things. You know, I didn't like the fact that she was talking to herself. But then I saw, you know, my friends at school, I didn't have very many Polish people and they were all like, you know, when I would mention some of these things to my friends, they'd go, really? And I was thinking that they also knew these things. I thought that their families went through this. And finally, I was beginning to realize that this was very different for me. So it affected me pretty profoundly as a child. And I was, you know, kind of shy, shy of my mother. I didn't really want to be around her very much when I was a child. And then was when I became a teenager, she still dwelt on a lot of these things and always made me feel like I should, like I didn't go through it and, you know, I wouldn't understand her. And, you know, she was always comparing me to my sister as like, well, you know, if I wanted some new piece of clothing or do something that was, you know, kind of in her mind, you know, frivolous, she would say, you know, Mira never had this and look how, you know, you're so spoiled, you know, and actually I was just, you know, trying to have a normal American teenage life compared to, you know, my American friends. So, so that played on me a little. Did you feel jealous, envious of that special bond between your mother and your sister, Mira? Well, I didn't think it was jealousy. It was more like guilt, like, oh, you know, because they would have, you know, they could be sitting in the room and just like look at each other and you could tell that they they had this mutual thought about something and I I felt completely out of the picture. And and I, you know, and then with all the talking about the wars, you know, and, you know, like almost every Sunday dinner, um, you know, she, you know, I felt guilty that I hadn't gone through all of that. I was beginning to think, gee, maybe I should go through something like that, you know, to, to have of this, you know, relationship. Yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, my sister's quite a bit older than me, so it was like how many years? Fifteen. So it's like I had a third parent the whole time I was growing right. up too, you know. So it wasn't this normal kind of sibling rivalry or anything. It was just this feeling of, gee, I wish I had the same relationship, and and I don't understand why. But I had a wonderful relationship with my father. He was just the most. Uh, gentleman, honorable, fun, fun person, you know, very 
psychologically understanding of, you know, people and, you know, charismatic. And, you know, I just had a great, I'm very thankful I had him for my father, because if I had just been with my mother and sister, I'm not sure how I would have ended up mentally. You know, like in my mother's and sister's case, I think that it has a lot to do with post-traumatic stress disorder. I do believe that these traumas sometimes don't have an effect till many years later. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, new study called uh, epigenetics. They're looking at the effect of, you know, trauma on the unborn child because of hormonal changes in the mother and the, 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 you know, the genetic impact. I mean, that's fascinating to me with my biology background. Having done all the research that you did uh, preparing the book and working on the book and, and after the, <laughs> the book was published, why do you think the story is so un- unknown? And I don't mean in Poland, because in Poland we obviously know, right, that there was a yeah. period of communism when you were not supposed to even talk about the Soviet right, oppression. Right. But in the West... Well, I'm, I think, for one, I don't think enough Polish people have come forth with their stories. You know, I don't think enough has been written <clears throat> about this whole experience. And, um, you know, it's kind of our our own fault, our, we Poles, you know, that we're not beating our own drum and saying, hey, look, you know, look what's happened. And the lack of films, you know, lack of um, other books out, you know, I mean, beginning to see a little bit more coming out. Um, Wesley Adamczyk, you know, he's my sister's age, but he wrote a wonderful book, uh, When God Looked the Other Way, which was also translated into Polish and did very well in Poland back in 2010. And, um, you know, we need more of that sort of thing. But it takes a lot of promotion, as you well know, in the publishing world, if you're not a famous writer, you know, you get very little real support and you know that's one reason I'm trying to do all these promotions that I've been doing to to get the word out. If you could now sit in front of your mom and talk to her after having published the book and heard what you heard from people who read it, what would you say to your mother? That I understand her better and that I appreciate everything she went through and that I forgive her for all her craziness when I was growing up. To listen to the full interview with Donna Urbicas, learn more about the book and get the dates of her September book tour in the East Coast, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you can guess what it is and where in Poland you can hear it. What you've just heard was Polish eagle. The white-tailed eagle has been a symbol of the Polish nation since the origin of Polish state. Poland is one of the favorite homes of this large bird of prey, the largest bird inhabiting Poland with 8-foot, 2.4-meter wingspan. With this size, no wonder that these predators require around a pound, half a kilogram of food a day. And their diet includes other vulnerable birds. The white-tailed eagle can be observed in the wild in many of Poland's national nature reserves. 
More recently, a number of internet feeds of eagle sanctuaries have been set up, allowing bird watchers to drop in on Poland's natural habitats and observe the bird whenever they please. Some scientists are worried that the white-tailed, or sea, eagle, which has recovered from near extinction in the 1980s, poses a new threat to other at-risk birds. There are now over 24,000 adult white-tailed eagles in Europe, which bounce back after countries banned the pesticides DDT and industrial chemicals known as PCBs. The eagle is not only the biggest Polish bird, but also the most important one. The crowned white eagle has been the coat of arms of the Polish state for seven centuries. It's a stylized white eagle with a golden beak and talons and wearing a golden crown in a red shield. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? And what is it? You've been listening to the 23rd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by... Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions. Also ideas for the news stories. Please share them with us on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with Chopin's Nocturne in E flat major. Thank you for listening. <laughs>